Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord.
So my whole theory is that this chapter is a number of instructions that Paul gives to the Roman Christians, and these instructions are indicators and commands. If you're not generous with your time, then that means you're selfish with your time. And so the command, that would be an indicator, but the command would be, be generous with your time. And the question is, okay, I hear Paul saying to to be generous, to love, to be long-suffering, to be patient, to serve. Okay, how do I now get there? I hear the command, but inwardly I still have a difficulty getting to that point from a heart motivation. And so I believe Paul actually shows us these things because they are mirror images, they are representations, they are reminders of how Christ has loved his people. So I want to first look at this notion of what it means to be a Christian, that each part of our lives, every single day, indeed every single hour, is supposed to be a living sacrifice. And we're going to talk about how that living sacrifice is actually a paradox. It's a, it's a um, it's an oxymoron, if you will. That, that's a phrase that means like, you know, like um, a clean bathroom in most of our houses. That's an oxymoron, right? That it, it seems contradictory because it's in a perennial state of opposition, a living sacrifice. It's sometimes hard for us as New Testament Christians, who, when we are so divorced in our thinking from the Old Testament, sacrifices are dead. And so what Paul is saying here is a paradox. We're going to press out what he means by that. I want to look at what Paul does over again three whole times in this chapter. He says, first, by the mercies of God. Then in verse 3, he says, for the, by the grace given to me. And then he says again in verse 7, according to the grace given to you. I want to look at how all of this has to be fueled through the grace of God. It cannot be based on your hope to be well-received in a church or for you finally to earn the approval of your parents, or for you to finally at some point, you know, get favor among the world and become popular and get, you know, get more Facebook likes or more, more Twitter retweets. Vain glory can never be a sufficient motivation, but rather it must be done through the grace of God And then I want to look at this notion that distinct roles in the body do exist. You can see this working out in our day-to-day life as a community. There are people who preach. There are people who teach. There are people who serve in practical, physical ways. There are people who serve in spiritual ways or counseling. There are people who encourage. There are people who give prophecies and give words of affirmation and words of encouragement, words of of exhortation to call up to the maturity in Christ. Each of these is a distinct role, and just like you would not allow one of your organs to be removed out of a body, and just as you would hope to never wish to undergo some sort of amputation, even though a finger is not a brain, and even though a heart is not a lung, All parts of the body are deeply integral to human experience. And Paul uses this analogy to say, we have distinct roles, don't neglect nor disdain one another. Just because you have a particular role doesn't mean you're less or greater. And therefore, from that, that really shapes the motivation for all of our service. And then I'm going to look from verse 9 all the way to the end at how not only are these positive commands for how we should keep our heart and walk in the church, but they are actually 
reminders of what Christ did for us. That each one of these positive commands that we are to, uh, to obey in our heart and through our actions, each one of them is actually a representation of the love of Christ. So my whole theory is, I cannot love my brother and sister like Christ loved them unless I first am transformed by that love to the place where that love is the pure and single motivation for loving my neighbor. That is to say, if I have not been so loved by God in such a way that I have a clear revelation and understanding of Jesus Christ, such that my heart is transformed by the power of the gospel and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, then it can never flow out to real love for other people. It will either become done out of my flesh and I'll burn out, or it'll become, be done out of a source of pride and I'll just become puffed up over my lifetime. Ultimately, it will end in being spiritually destroyed. It's spiritual shipwreck. But on the contrary, if we are encountered by the love of Christ, then we are transformed into people who can radically, sacrificially give. That's my whole theory. That's what I believe Paul is doing. He's just done 11 chapters of the most glorious theology about how these Gentile Christians have been brought into this new community in Christ, that Christ has gathered them into one new people. And because of that great glorious gospel, he then tells them how to live in that people. So I want to first look at this notion of the living sacrifice. As we mentioned, a living sacrifice is a paradox. It is something that doesn't make any sense at all. Paul's appeal actually reveals the, his understanding of what true worship is. In the Old Testament, before the, the sacrifice of Christ, people would offer sacrifices. And often this sacrifice would involve eating of food. An Israelite would bring a goat or a lamb or a cow or some sort of you know, birds, and they would bring them to the tabernacle or temple, and they would offer them according to the offerings given, and that animal was then slain. That animal was killed, and that was the act of worship. This predates even the time of the tabernacle or temple. We look at Adam in the garden, and he was supposed to live before God. And he did not live before God, but rather sinned before God. And so to make a covering for Adam, an animal was slain, and its skins were used to clothe and to cover Adam. Likewise, with Cain and Abel, they bring offerings to God, and Abel brings an offering, and that offering is slain. Cain's offering was not received, and he perverts it into false worship, and then instead of slaying an offering, he slays his brother. So worship always involves sacrifice, and that sacrifice is death. The sacrifice and the worship required in the scriptures, the worship that's shown to us on every page throughout the entire scriptures, is a sacrifice that is a death. Why? To atone for sins. Now, that atonement has been accomplished in Christ. Nevertheless, the pattern of worship remains that there is a necessary death. But now we worship not to atone for sins, but to walk out as those who have become united in a death like Christ so that one day we have the future of being resurrected. But between now and then, we live as those who are dead to the world and alive to God. That's what Paul is saying. You are to be a living sacrifice. 
or one who is in a constant state of living, even yet though you are dying. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I want to just say at the onset that this combats against the notion of Christianity in our day, that Christianity and worship is going to church or going to a prayer meeting. Those are practical outlets of part of our worship, but worship involves everyday life. Worship involves how I carry my heart. It is not enough for me to rejoice in the sanctuary with the saints and yet outwardly or inwardly have animosity toward God in my heart or toward a brother in my heart. The New Testament is clear. If I'm not in love with the community, if I'm not in harmony with the community, then I really, according to the epistle of John, then I really do not know God at all. If I don't love my brother, yet I claim to know God, I'm a liar, I'm a hypocrite. And so what Paul is saying here is that they ought to be people who are walking around and yet their life is one which is being given up to God at all times, which is true worship. Jesus said the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship in, spiritual, uh, in spirit and truth. And Paul then goes on to say that this living sacrifice, this notion that he's explaining, that is what spiritual worship is. So, therefore, the phenomenon of Pentecost is kind of an image of what Christian worship looks like. You remember what happened at Pentecost? Fire came down from heaven as the Holy Spirit was poured out, and then a tongue of fire or a clove, like picture a, a thing of garlic, it has cloves, little, little flames, were then put over top of each one of the disciples in that upper room. Those 120 were visual parables of what Christian worship looks like. Back in the time of the Levites, they were told the fire on the altar in the tabernacle or the temple of God could not go out. And that fire, which is not to go out, is, is supposed to be a reminder of the fact that Yahweh is supposed to be worshipped at all times. We don't just approach God after we've committed sin. We don't just approach God on Sundays or Wednesdays or Friday nights. We are supposed to be those who walk before the Lord day by day, moment by moment. And so this notion of this clove of fire or this tongue of fire which rests upon each of these disciples in the upper room is a picture of what Christian worship looks like. We no longer go to a tabernacle or temple to worship. We, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And these cloves of fire which rest upon the heads of the disciples are pictures of the fact that we are supposed to be burning on fire for the Lord, like a lampstand which does not go out. And so this is what the Holy Spirit is doing for us. He is that oil which keeps the lamp burning. The paradox, therefore, embodies our faith, dying to self and sin while living to God. This is what Christianity is. So in the face of this paradox, the, the fact that the, he's just presented to them a picture that is not able to be understood by the natural mind, he then immediately says, wait a second, you may have just heard what I said and thought about it naturally, but you actually now need to have your mind renewed. He says, do not be conformed to this world. What would it look like to be conformed to the world in light of Romans 12.1? It would be to say, Paul, that's impossible. Sacrifices get killed, and you've told me that I need to be alive. And close the book, 
wrap up the letter. There's nothing more to read. Paul, you're mad. No, Paul says, don't receive this naturally, but receive it spiritually. You say, you're in a time of service, and yet you hear a message calling you to excel in service. You say, I don't need to hear this message. I'm doing quite well. No, receive it spiritually. There's actually a greater motivation that Christ has for you in your service today. Paul says, to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That is, there is some activity which the Holy Spirit is going to do for these Roman Christians by which they are able to now reorient everything the way that they think about those who are among them in their body. And this is exactly what goes on in the rest of the chapter. Paul has just told them what to do, that is to live as sacrifices, to serve God, and now he's about to tell them how to do that very thing. And the way that he does it is he first tells them to rethink. He doesn't tell them to just throw themselves into service right away. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't, after just saying, be a living sacrifice, he doesn't then just say, okay, and, and you go read your Bible more, and you pray more, and you you know, equip yourself for every good work. No, he immediately moves to change how you think. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Have your mind be renewed by the spirit, the Holy Spirit, such that you rethink how you serve God. Serving God is not just doing spiritual acts of prayer, reading your Bible, attending church. Serving God does not just look in a vertical transaction, but as Paul shows, it actually is manifest in horizontal transactions, horizontal relationships. That is to say, if I claim to love God and serve God, my life ought to look like me reaching out to brothers and sisters around me, not just devotional acts to God alone. So first of all, this is to be done by the mercies of God. All of these at the very start, have to be done by the mercy of God. It cannot be done in human self-effort. No amount of pleasing God in our own strength could ever work. First of all, you would run out of your own strength. That's the first reason it can't work. And the second reason, probably the ultimate reason, but second in the way I'm presenting it is, if you did serve God in your own strength, it wouldn't bring God glory because the one who provides the energy for the action is the one who is responsible for the action. This is where the the great Protestant doctrine of uh, sola dea gloria is so important. What it means is to God alone is the glory. We have many blessings. You've just heard a number of them in the announcements time that are happening in our church, but all of those are because of the grace of God. And because of the grace of God being the source and the origin of those great things, that it means that he is the only one who should get any glory at all. Yes, we participate with the grace of God, but as Paul tells us, and and the New Testament says over and over in, in many places, that the Holy Spirit is the whole reason why we want to participate with God. So we have to repent even of our good motives if we claim that them are our own. It's not just that I participate with the grace of God, but it's he who causes me to want to participate. This is what it means to give God the glory in everything. So, Paul emphasizes this theme again and again in verse 1, verse 3, and verse 6. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to you. Look at that very closely. He says, I'm calling you to do everything by grace, and just to 
reemphasize that, he's going to say, I'm not even saying this out of my own hope for the Roman church. Paul's not even saying, like, I have a great plan for the Roman church as this apostle. I want the city of Rome and the church in the city of Rome to be the greatest sparkling diamond in the crown of Christ in the Mediterranean. But rather, he says, by the grace that was given to me, I'm telling you this revelation. He's not even saying that this is like his own manufactured wisdom, but rather he's saying that through the grace of God, I know it's right to say that you ought not to think more highly than yourself. And so Paul says, serve God, love God, be a living sacrifice. But before you do that, you need to renew your mind. And then he goes on to say, by the grace of God, even though Paul was the greatest apostle at his day and probably the greatest apostle who has ever lived, he says, don't think about it like that, but rather do not think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but think with sober judgment. We talked about judgment last week and judgment being a righteous thing. The way to judge your life is not to see whether or not you're measuring up to the standard that you see around you, but to, but to give God glory for the growth and to repent of any apathy or sloth in yourself. And yet, as Paul says over and over again, forget what lies behind and press on. Did you do well at your Bible reading in the first half of this year? Press on. Did you do really poorly with your Bible reading? I love being able to preach on July 2 because this is like the halfway point in the year. If you were waiting for January 1 to start a new Bible in the year plan, guess what? July 1, half of the year, go for it. The point isn't whether you get trapped up in your performance. The point is press on. Use sober judgment. Don't focus upon yourself but rather focus upon the grace of God, that it's ample, that it's ready, that it's constant, that it is poured out to you in Christ. And so what Paul's saying is, don't think so much on yourself, think soberly. And the sober way of thinking is to connect the dots. If I have any fruit at all, it is the fruit of the Spirit. If I have any growth at all, it is because of the grace of God. And even my participation with the grace of God, which we should aim to do, which Paul is telling them to do, even that participation that comes from the Holy Spirit. So, as we live in Christian communities, we ought not to pride ourselves when the manifold grace of God abounds to us. This is the greatest temptation. The greatest temptation in the Christian walk is not how you deal with trouble, although that is indeed a very serious temptation. You must, in those moments, trust in the sovereignty of God. But another, even more subtle temptation in the Christian walk is, how do you handle praise? How do you handle success? Because if you're not willing to go to God with the glory, if you're not willing to thank him for the great blessings of God, then you certainly aren't going to handle it well when those are being taken away from you. Look, at, look and consider the life of Job. Job was blessed beyond measure. He gave thanks to God. It all was taken from him, and he said, I still will worship the Lord. That is what we ought to do when things are really great. Bless the Lord, even so. What, what usually happens is when things are great, we begin to coast, and when things are bad, we seek the Lord in prayer, and we try to amend our lives and our practices. But really, we ought to forget what lies behind, think soberly, connect it to the grace of God, and press on how we might serve one another. And that's exactly what Paul then says to do. Press on to maturity, 
Think soberly and understand that the fruit is from God. So my question is this, why does Paul then say we ought to reassess ourselves or we ought to check our self-understanding before he then commands them to serve? Why does he do that? He says, be a living sacrifice, be renewed in your minds, don't think of yourself too much or too highly. And then he goes on to then talk about serving one another in the body. And I think the answer is this. Why does he do it? I think the answer is this. It is because if you think of yourself as this great person, this great leader, this great disciple, this great mature Christian, and everybody around me can't get it right, how much can you serve that person, that brother or sister? This is why Christians have always been the greatest influences in society is because we have a faith which teaches us that we were bought with a price, that we were redeemed to God when still in our sins. That is our self-identity. Yes, I've been purchased in Christ. I've been washed by his blood. I've been filled with his spirit. I'm a new creation and I'm destined for glory, but I came from ashes. And I remember that while I love my brothers and sisters. If you think of yourself as too dignified to serve in any capacity, then you are not following Paul's admonition, which we're going to see in a moment is how Christ lived. Nevertheless, I want you to just think about this, maybe put it in a practical way. I think it's a good practice in life to never think that washing a toilet is beneath you. Right? Why? Because what did, what did Christ do right before he went to the cross? He knew his disciples wouldn't make it to the cross, and so he enacted the cross in a parable. He took off his outer garments, and he put on a robe, and he then washed their feet, feet that had walked in places of, of horse feces and dog feces, the common streets of the day. They were dirty, disgusting places. And this is what Christ does. He says, Peter, unless I wash you, you can't have a part in me. That's what has happened to each one of us if we're new in Christ. So therefore, our worship to God is carried out in practical service to one another. Our worship is not vertical alone, but it is horizontal as well. He says in verse 4, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Think about this. Where does your arm connect to your body? At the shoulder, right? Is your shoulder part of the arm or is it part of the torso? That's a weird question because it's kind of its own thing and yet it's a meeting place of two other things. So which parts? Okay, the bones, but what about the veins going through them? Are those part of the shoulder? Are those part of the cardiovascular system? What Paul says here, we are members one of another. The body is such an interweaving and intercomplex organism that you can't really say that one part is really important or one part is less important. I didn't believe the dentist when he wanted to take my wisdom teeth because I didn't want to pay for it, but I also was afraid of the surgery. But also, maybe there's a function for them. I'm not going to discard part of my frame without some sort of reason for it, right? We don't volunteer to lose organs. What, what Paul is saying is here, we are members one of another. There are sinews, there are joints, there are a skeletal system, there's a nervous system, there's a brain, there's a heart, there's kidneys. All of these parts are integral. And even the parts we think are less integral 
are still so important. That's what he's saying is, don't think of yourself as, oh, I'm the brain, I'm really important, or, oh, I'm the hand, I do the will of the brain. Don't think of yourself like that, but think of yourself as members, one of another, recognizing the distinct role and praising and thanking God for your role and their role, living in harmony. We share in one another through Christ. We are not our own. Think about this. Like when you think about, you know, Christians who think the, the body of Christ is not important. Do you see like kidneys hanging out on, in the world by themselves? It's preposterous. And yet sometimes in our heart, we're tempted to think like, oh, I'm the left lung. I'm super important. Without me, everything would go awry. And that is true. Without you, everything would go awry. But guess what? You also need everything else. That's what Paul is saying. He's using that picture very intentionally. Though we are distinct, each is integral to the proper function of the body, and each needs the body. Verse 6, part A, first half of verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. These gifts are from God and are for the body. They are gifts that I have, which you need, and gifts which you have, which I need. This is what the Christian body is. We should therefore neither disdain our brother's gift nor neglect from exercising our own. Again, to use the imagery, if a lung stops functioning, it's in great danger. The whole system is compromised. So, Paul then goes on to say, here's some different gifts. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation. I want to I touch on exhortation. We have wonderful brothers and sisters who operate in spiritual gifts. I think we have pretty good teaching at this church. And I think we have a, a number of brothers who exhort well. But I think this, if, if there was one thing I think is really lacking in our church is there's usually exhortation from spiritual leadership or, or official people who are elders. But don't think that just because you're an elder, you can't exhort one another or you can't encourage one another. I, I think this is a great, it's, it's kind of like the immune system in the body. That is, if you see a brother or sister who is suffering, guess what? The elders are not God. We don't know all the time who is suffering. Sometimes people try to not suffer in silence. They try to kind of hold on to their pain and just deal with it on their own. But if you, as a saint, know, oh, hey, this brother of mine, I detected in this conversation, hey, that they're going through a hard time at work, you can encourage them. It's part of your role as a, as a body or as a member of the body. I can encourage my brothers or sisters. I can exhort them. Perhaps you can go home and pray for them throughout the week and ask the Lord to give you maybe a verse to share with them. These are just examples, but the point remains, exhortation and encouragement is one of the defense mechanisms of a community against losing members or having members become sick. The one who exhorts in exhortation contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And immediately, you can, if you know yourself in Christ, you can say, yeah, this is a gift that I have, and I ought to do it well. Therefore, how can you do it well long term? Uh, I want to just state, and I've mentioned it just a minute ago, but I want to just reiterate, the health of a Christian church is directly dependent upon the health and service of its members. 
If the elders of this church remained faithful and all the people who aren't in any ordained official capacity, not even those who get paid, because that's actually small. The number of people who get paid is smaller than the number of the elders. And the number of people who volunteer is different than them. So what I'm just saying is, even if everything at the top worked really well, if all the service evaporated from this church, we'd have to close basically in a week. That's the way any healthy church should work. The Christian church is not designed as like official pastor with the cool parking spot and car and title and suit and celebrity, even among his you know, church. The, the way the Christian church is set up is there are leaders who oversee and watch and lead, and there are people who serve and exhort and encourage and, and do works of service and prophesy and use spiritual gifts and evangelize. It all is important, and it all needs to be done. Part of my exhortation this morning is that if you feel like God has gifted you in some way, if one of these rings true, and you're not using it, I plead with you, we're, we're being neglected. We, we need you. So, the question then is this. How can any one person, let alone even you know a mature leader, let alone a young person in the faith, how can you fulfill such a great and noble vision? What I've just presented as what I think is Paul's writing here in, in this chapter is a high calling in Christ. It's not just where we're going to be with the Lord forever. It's also what he's called us to now. My role as a Christian, my noble responsibility. In the Protestant church, we talk about this doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. That's what Paul is saying. You ought to be living sacrifices. That's what Pentecost was. It was a living representation of the altar with a fire on it. And so how could you possibly fulfill this grand and noble vision? I'm tired just thinking about it, Paul, and you want me to do this? It took a time just to understand. Surely this is impossible by human strength. And I would say yes and amen. It is impossible. But I would also say it's not just impossible by human strength. It's also impossible by human motivation. Even if you had infinite amount of strength, if your motivation was coming from the flesh, it would go astray very quickly. Paul has called for, in these chapters, nothing less than the full imitation of Christ in all of life. And therefore, nothing less than a heart-changing revelation of Jesus Christ is needed. Unless you have been thoroughly renewed and you've become a new creation in Christ and you have seen his great love for you, you could never hear with any sort of mercy or grace, a call or a command to serve your brothers and sisters, it would just sound like earning, performance, effort. But rather at the same time, I believe what Paul is doing in this chapter is he's giving them commands that were taken from Jesus Christ's very life. And indeed, in one or two places, his words. And I want to look at them. In verse 9, he says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Jesus Christ's love was genuine. Indeed, it was the greatest love that has ever been known. Jesus says that greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friend. And Jesus Christ certainly did not lay down his life for his own accord. His love was genuine. He loved his brothers with brotherly affection. He outdid them by taking Peter, this 
terribly weak disciple and elevating him to a place where he had friendship. No longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. He elevated these weak, slow, slothful, prideful disciples to friends of Christ. It's an amazing thing that Christ has done. He then goes on to say, in verse 11, Paul says, Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Remember when Christ came into Jerusalem, he saw the temple. And as it says, he quotes from, from uh, the book of the Psalms. John quotes this in John chapter 2. The disciples remembered later that zeal for your house would consume me. Christ was zealous for the purity of the church. Remember what we talked about last week? Christ's judgment is not, it's not kind of tenuous or it's not slothful. It's eager because Christ is zealous for the purity of God's people. Jesus often went to desolate places. Paul again says in verse 12, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. How can I be constant in prayer? By looking and remembering Jesus Christ was constant in prayer. If anyone did not need a strong prayer life, surely it would have been the Son of God, but clearly even he desired to be in the place of prayer. Luke 5 tells us that it was his practice. He would often go by himself to desolate or lonely places to pray. Throughout his ministry, Jesus visited the lowly. Paul goes on to say, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. But then he goes on in verse 16, he says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Consider this, Jesus Christ, who was the incarnate God in the flesh, spent most of his time, if we can interpolate from the summary statements of the gospels, he spent most of his ministry with people who were sick, with people who were lame, crippled, deaf, mute, Leprous, cancerous, filled with demons, women, children. He considered himself as given for them, and therefore he gave himself to them. While encountering their slurs and insults upon the cross, Jesus asked God to forgive sinful men. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless them and do not curse them. Live in harmony Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. This is what Christ did for us. In his death, he did not repay evil for evil, but entrusted himself to God's justice. You see, unless I understand that Christ has done this for me, I could never be transformed to do this for someone else. And even if I, as a Christian, know that fact, it must become so worked in me by the Holy Spirit's renewal of me as a new creation that that is my constant motivation source. Not to earn favor with men. Not to hopefully one day earn praise in public settings. Not to, you know, have a great life and be comfortable and earn various things. But rather, moment by moment, when I'm tempted to be disdaining of my brother who needs help in that moment. I repent in the moment by the grace of the Holy Spirit, remembering these commands from Paul, and I say to myself, no, I'm going to live in sacrificial love because I have been encountered by one who has loved me far greater than I could ever repay to this saint 
this fellow saint in front of me. That is what I am saying is Paul's motivation. That's what Paul is doing in this chapter. He's saying, do these commands, but guess what? These were done for you by Christ. They were done for you out of his great love to you. Therefore, the cross of Christ is the greatest paradox in human history. Paul says, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 21, do not overcome do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And closing here at this, at this verse, this is the greatest paradox in human history. Never has so much good come from so much evil. The crucifixion of the innocent Messiah was the most evil thing to ever take place in this planet. Far greater of a wicked deed than Adam's stealing of the apple. Nevertheless, Indeed, it could even be said that the cross of Christ was the only good thing to ever happen in this world. Through his death and resurrection, Christ overcame the evil one with good. And therefore, closing with this, it is only in seeing Jesus' great love for us that while we did not deserve it, that we could ever be transformed to likewise love and serve our neighbors. Unless I know that Jesus loved me infinitely, I could never be freed to give myself away to my brothers and sisters in Christ, and also through evangelism to the world around us. So let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would, by your Spirit, show Christ to us, that we would be able to behold his sacrifice for us, not just to atone for our sins, but also that that sacrifice, what he did on the cross, was the demonstration of your love, We know, Father, that your word says that while Christ was on the cross, you were reconciling us to yourself. We pray, Lord, that we would be so transformed by that love that you would make us new people with new motivations, that we would be renewed by the Spirit, that we would think of ourselves as those who've been purchased by love and purchased for love. In Jesus' mighty name.